I think I've shared this with you some time back, but there was a church council. They got together and they were having a meeting for membership. And one guy wanted to be a member in the church, and he had been a member of many churches all of his life, and he thought he really knew the Bible. And so they quizzed him on how much he knew truth. They asked him questions about the Bible, and they said, What part of the Bible do you like the best? He said, I like the New Testament the best. What book in the New Testament, asked the church council? The book of parables, sir. Well, would you kindly relate one of these parables to this council? So the uncertain candidate bluffed his way as follows. Once upon a time, there was a man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, and the thorns grew up and choked that man. And he went on, and he met the queen of Sheba, and she gave that man, sir, a thousand talents of gold and silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got in his chariot and drove furiously. And when he was driving up alongside a big tree, his hair got caught in a limb, and it left him hanging there. And he hung there many days and many nights, and the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair, and he dropped and fell on the stony ground. And it began to rain, and it rained forty days and forty nights. And he hid himself in a cave. And he went out and he met a man who said, Come and take supper with me. But he said, I cannot, for I have married a wife. But the man went into the highways and byways and compelled him to come in. And he went on and he came to Jerusalem and saw Queen Jezebel sitting up high in a window. And when she saw him, she laughed. And he said, Throw her down. And he said, Throw her down from there again. And they threw her down seventy times seven. And of the fragments, they picked up twelve baskets full. Now, whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? It's for reasons like this that Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning... And he mentioned a couple of things. And I love your hunger for truth in the Word of God. Now... Along with that, we have at Calvary Chapel a school of ministry where people have, from all over, but mostly here, but from all over the United States, actually, at different times, every year, come and sacrifice their time, their energy, their finances. They do without. They study hard all day and all night so that they can learn the Bible as much as possible. They study it, and they study it together and they grow in relationship with each other. They go out and they do short-term missions and they come back to the church and they get excited to serve the Lord permanently. And tonight we have uh, two groups of School of Ministry students that we want to introduce to you. We have uh, the School of Ministry students um, past. They have just uh, finished their courses and their outreaches and they're graduating tonight and we want to pray for them. And then we have a whole new batch of about 60 new students uh, who are coming in for this year's School of Ministry. I was thinking of different scripture verses. I was thinking probably at the beginning of the year, their scripture verse as a whole would have been in Luke 24, where you you get so excited when Jesus speaks to you. And on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples turned to each other and said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? And I think there's a, a high level of excitement at the beginning of the year in the School of Ministry. But as the year progresses... Uh, students become a little more hesitant. 
they look a little warily when they hear different things, and that's good, but they sort of become like in Acts 17.11. They receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind, but they search the Scriptures daily to see if these things be so. Then toward the end of the school, they get a little weary in well-doing. And perhaps the Scripture verse that would sum up their attitude would be Ecclesiastes 12.12, where he said, And further, my son, be admonished by these of the making of many books. There is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Listen, they're applauding. There must be something to that. They know it's true. But they've completed a task. They've stuck with it, and they've finished the task. And Paul's great motivation when he spoke to the Ephesians is that I might finish my course with joy. Now, they finished all their courses with joy, but his was the course of life and ministry. And at the end of his life, he could say, I have finished the race. Hence, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And these students have finished their academic courses and practical courses, and now there is laid up for them a little certificate that we want to give to them, and we want to pray for them. And I'm excited to see what God is going to do through their lives. I'm excited to see what God's going to do from here on out. And when Paul left Ephesus... He said to the Ephesians, Now I commend you to God in the word of His grace. And that's what we want to do with them. So I'm going to call the names of the uh, School of Ministry students, and um, I'll have you come up and we'll pray for you. These are the graduates of the 1994-1995 School of Ministry. Kevin Albrecht. Bob Barra. Toby Berry. Paula Chadwell. Kim Cornell. Kristen Cresswell. Sounds like the Emmys here. Donna Davis. Chris Dreyer, Philip Duncan, Matt Ellison. Matt even wore a tie. Give him a hand just for wearing the tie tonight. Neil Gerard. I don't know if you're here tonight, Neil, but if you're here, come on up. Annie Griego, our new receptionist. Jerry Haynes. Steve Coleman. Lee Korch. Sarah Krikow. Tim Leva, Anthony Lopez, Matthew Lopez, Anita Morales, 
How did I do? Did I do it right? Good. Neil Ortiz. Anthony Sanchez, is he here tonight? Oh, clap for him anyway, it's all right. Joel Steinhauser. Kelly Thayer. Yvette Thibodeau. Richard Trujillo. Ricardo. Gail Villalonga. Jennifer Wallace. Willie Wilson. Chris, why don't you come on up for a minute? Chris Armijo has been sort of the director of the school for a few years, actually five years. And before we pray for these students, um, I wanted to introduce sort of the staff. There's a lot of staff in terms of teachers. Uh, we have many pastors and teachers who train the course, uh, the people in the classes. But uh, Chris sort of oversees it along with Bill Welch. Bill, where are you at? Come on up. Arlene, are you around? Come on up. Chris, why don't you uh, give a few uh, words of admonition or challenge or just tell us something. Do something. You want to do something right off the cuff? Whatever, yeah. Okay. um, As I was just thinking about what to share earlier today in regards to this class, I one of the main things that comes to mind is hope. And uh, when we first started this school, I think one of the main things that I saw in all these students' eyes is just a, just a glimpse of hope, that they had an expectation. And uh, I think some of those things that they were hoping for is, number one, is they wanted to meet with God. Another thing is that they wanted, they hoped to be changed by God, and they hoped to be used by God. It's an element of trust that is involved when one hopes in something, when one hopes in the Lord. And also with that trust also comes an element of perseverance. And I know that as the students enter into the school of ministry with that hope in their eyes, that they also have a lot of trusting that they have to do. And through the school, through their studies, through the different places that the Lord places them in, there's a lot of perseverance. And through that perseverance, God produces character. And I could honestly say as that hope was placed, or I saw that hope once in their eyes once they walked into uh, registration and orientation, not knowing what in the world they were going in to get themselves into, that you could see a lot of trust in the Lord, a lot of hope, and a lot of perseverance. And again, through that perseverance, we've seen a lot of the character of Jesus Christ produced through their lives. We're excited about what the Lord has in store for them. In the Bible, the, ref- the Lord refers to hope as a desire of something good with expectation of receiving it. And I think the expectations and the hopes that the students had in this school, that they could leave this place saying that the Lord has met their hopes and expectations. And through that hope, God has definitely and absolutely produced perseverance and character. And uh, we just want to say that we're, we're proud of you in the right sense and in the fact that uh, 
you can see the character of Jesus Christ in your hearts and in your lives. And that as you step on out, that you continue to hope, continue to hope to see God, continue to hope to meet with God, and continue to hope to one day see God face to face. And as you hope and God continues to work through that character he's produced in your life, continue to do it only for his glory and for his kingdom. We're going to pass these certificates out. As we do, let's pray for them. Father, we are really grateful to see lives come with hungry hearts, hearts that have been touched by God, hearts that are eager to serve those that want to beat with your heart for a lost world, whose greatest desire in this world is how they can effectively communicate Jesus Christ and his kingdom in the midst of a dying kingdom of this world. We pray, Father, that you would reward their diligent seeking. As your word said, you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. We pray, Father, that you would lead them in lines of ministry, enlarge their borders, their areas of effectiveness, their sphere of influence. Lead them, Father, by your Spirit. Empower them to do your work. We now, Lord, are so eager in anticipation to find out exactly where they're going to go and what they're going to do. What you'll do with them. You've done so much in them. Now work through them as well. We pray, Father, that this school of ministry would only be the beginning would be the whetting of the appetite to learn more of you as we are always in school while we are on earth. And so, Father, as we learn of Jesus and his meek and humble spirit, may we be changed into his likeness. Use these for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him a hand. Now, I want to introduce the next school to you, but we'll do that at the end of the study, and we'll just uh, have them come up all at once, and we'll pray for them. Tonight, let's turn in our Bibles with hungry hearts to uh, the last little section of the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. If you've been with us in our study of Titus, it's been a rewarding study. We've learned so much of the way churches operate, operate, leaders should operate, and church people in general, whether young, old, male, or female, ought to work in the body of Christ. Uh, This is our 19th study. I was counting them this afternoon. Uh, 19 separate studies in the book of Titus. It's a short book, but we've taken a long time in it. And tonight we want to look at chapters... Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He said, When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. 
And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Father, as we now spend the next several minutes studying the last few verses penned by Paul the Apostle to Titus, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, we know, Lord, that this was a letter that served an immediate need in the life of Titus and in the life of the church on that island of Crete. It was very needful for that time, but you have graciously preserved it by your Spirit for us in modern times to extract those principles, to apply them to our lives. I pray, Father, that again you would be a rewarder of those who diligently seek you, that we would seek to understand the truth that is here and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a boy living in New Jersey who every year on his birthday eagerly anticipates a special letter. You see, before his father died, who had terminal cancer, his father knew that he wouldn't be around long enough to watch his son grow up from stage to stage and year to year, and he wouldn't be there to give him the steady guidance of experience. And so his father wisely wrote a letter before his death, anticipating the different stages and questions that his son would go through, and wrote a letter for each year. And on his birthday, he gave the letters to someone and made sure that they were sent and would arrive on his son's birthday. And there's a final letter that he will get to open on the day of his wedding, final instructions from a father to his son about how to have a successful and vibrant marriage. Those letters mean more to that guy than anything else. He wants that once-a-year correspondence from his father. Now, God has graciously given us love letters from heaven. That's what the Bible is. It's a series of letters, some by Paul, some by John, some by Peter, some narrative books, some poetic books, some historic books, but they're letters that speak of a loving God and let us know the character of God as we read it. Tonight, we are finishing with a letter a letter of Paul to Titus, and we're going to say goodbye to this church in Crete. We're going to say goodbye to the pastor in Crete named Titus. And as Paul is finishing this, I don't know how long it took him, maybe a few hours to write it by hand. Maybe he dictated it. But no doubt in his mind, all of the thoughts of his visit to Crete, that island, are going through his mind. We figure that Paul visited the island of Crete after his two-year imprisonment in Rome, and he was released for a period of about five years, we think. And after he was released, he went to Crete, visited it, left, and put Titus there. A lot of problems on Crete, a lot of laziness and apathy, and there was sort of a general malaise and uprising in leadership. But all in all, Paul writes with sternness and yet affection to Titus for the Cretans. It's been said that where love is thick, faults are thin. Where faults are thick, love is thin. Though they had a lot of faults, Paul writes with great love and affection and minimizes those faults and 
we, he closes off this letter, notice, with grace, the same way that he began it. All those, verse 15, who are with me, greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The body or the corpus of the letter is finished. And, and these are the closing remarks. Every letter has a, a few closing sentiments. Either the writer of the letter wants to reemphasize an important truth or there's a postscript, a few final salutations and greetings, and that's exactly what Paul does. He follows the format of almost every ancient letter as he closes with naming a few people in verses 12 and 13, and then in verse 14 he reemphasizes something that's on his heart for the whole church, and then the last verse is simply a few closing comments. We often skip over these parts of a book. We don't memorize them, certainly. We may have underlined salient promises and truths, but most of the time we get to the end part of the book and we just kind of read over it lightly and we think, ah, it's not a big deal. I like the ends of Paul's letters. I find tremendous truths in them. In fact, Griffith Thomas, a great expositor, said, the word pictures of Paul's friends are among the most helpful parts of his letters. So tonight, we want to look at his friends. And as we teach this study, I also have in mind some of the students in our school of ministry. Not some of them, all of them. Because Paul is writing about his helpers. And he loved to see people, young and old, get raised up and pushed up to take the, the banner, to take the mantle of leadership and run with it. And I just rejoice to see so many of these students get the vision run with it, get raised up in areas of leadership, go out and start churches, go out and be missionaries, that the word of the gospel might be proclaimed. First of all, in verses 12 through 13, is Paul's faithful friends. That's what we're going to take first. Secondly, Paul's final emphasis, verse 14. And finally, Paul's farewell remarks in verse 15. Let's look at his faithful friends. and They're found in verse 12 and 13. When I send Artemis, and we'll get the flow of this, but I want to just remark on each person. When I send Artemis to you, that is to Titus, or Tychicus, they have weird names, huh? Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. There's a lot of this's in them. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Friends are the most precious commodity you have on this earth. Now in heaven and in your heart you have the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But next to that, godly friends who accept you as you are. There's nothing like that. And wherever Paul went and whoever Paul wrote to, there were friends that he knew. He was linked together with them in the gospel. That's why C.S. Lewis noted, Friends don't just gaze into each other's eyes. They face in the same direction toward a common goal and toward a common God. Christian friendships are the best because when you're a friend with another Christian, you can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And every now and then, somebody will come up and say, I don't know anybody here. And it's a big crowd. It's hard to know a big crowd. But you don't have to know everybody. There's a few you can know. There's people who sit next to you you can meet after a service. Oh, but they're not friendly to me. Solomon said, He who has friends must himself be friendly. So be friendly to them. Make Christian friends. Get into a small group. 
to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is writing to his friends and he is sending some other friends to his friends in Crete. Paul stays in touch with them. Paul writes to them. The last letter that Paul ever wrote is 2 Timothy, the book right before Titus. That's when he's saying his final farewell to all of his friends, many who had left him, but some who had stayed close to him. He's signing off. But he knew that he would see his friends again. That's another advantage of being a Christian, is that when you die, when you depart from life, you have hope after death. Unbelievers don't have that. I know this from doing many funerals and looking deep into the eyes of unbelievers versus believers. There's hope in the eyes of a believer. There is absolute hopelessness in the eyes of a heathen. It's a blank stare. Death ends it all. In Israel, when you say hi to somebody, you say shalom. When you say goodbye to a person, you say shalom. It either means hello or goodbye. It's sort of the entrance and the end in a relationship. But if you're a good friend, the Hebrews, the Israelis always say, when you depart, the saying in Israel is this, when you depart from a friend, it's never shalom. It's always lehitraot, which means I will see you later in Hebrew. So to a good friend, it's never goodbye for good. It's I'll see you later. And as a Christian, when you depart friends, it's never goodbye for good. It's always Goodbye for a while, but I'll see you later. Lehitraot. Now, first of all, Titus. He's not mentioned in here, but his books at the his name's at the top of the book. So this is who Paul is writing to. And I just want to give a quick synopsis of these people that are seen as Paul's friends. First of all, Titus. Now we talked about him already at the beginning of the book. He was probably Paul's first convert as a Gentile. Paul brought Titus to Jerusalem to prove to the Jewish elders that God was doing a work among the Gentiles, that salvation was not only for Jewish people, but also for non-Jews. And so he wrote in the Galatian epistle, and I went up to Jerusalem and I brought Titus with me. Titus was exhibit A in lawyer talk. This is what God has done through this Gentile. Look at him. A work of grace has been done. And he became quite a leader. Uh, Paul sends him to Crete. Paul sends him also on a very difficult journey to the church of Corinth. How would you like to go to Corinth with all of the divisions, all of the backbiting, all of the sexual immorality, and be the emissary of truth from Paul the Apostle to that church? Well, Titus did it, and he did it with great victory. Nine times he is mentioned in the book of 2 Corinthians, and Paul endorses him very, very highly. Now notice in verse 12 to Titus, Really, the message, first of all, is to him. He says, When I sent Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. When Paul is writing this, he is probably in Macedonia. Probably in Philippi of Macedonia. And he's writing, telling Titus, Meet me over in Nicopolis. Now, if you read, you don't have to do it now, but the very last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, Luke closes out the book by saying, Paul spent two whole years in his own rented house in Rome preaching the gospel. It's called house arrest. He was arrested by the Roman government, but he had some free reign. He could have his own quarters, and he had to pay rent for his own jail cell, so to speak. 
After two years of house arrest, Paul was released. When he was released, he went on several journeys. We don't exactly know where. We think Spain, perhaps. We know he went to Macedonia. He went to Dalmatia. He went to Nicopolis. And at Nicopolis, he was joined at two different times by Titus and also Timothy. And his final visit to Nicopolis, he was arrested once again, taken to Rome, where he died in the Mamertine prison when he was executed. It says, meet me in Nicopolis. If you were to look that up uh, in a dictionary or encyclopedia, you'd find that it's a nondescript term that could mean one of several cities. Because Nicopolis means a conquered city. Nikao means I conquer or I have victory, and polis is the Greek word for city. So a, a Nicopolis is a city that has been conquered. And whenever they would conquer a city, oftentimes they wouldn't name it. They would just say, you know, conquered city number one, number two, number three. It's a Nicopolis. But because there's no other name or territory attached to this one, we think it's the most famous one conquered by Augustus in about 31 B.C. When uh, Augustus was fighting Mark Antony and Cleopatra, he took over this city in Greece, which is very close to uh, the area that Paul sent Titus to later on. And so he said, come and join me, and let's spend the winter there. Now, why? There's probably a few reasons for this. Number one, Nicopolis would be a great base of operations to an area. And if you want to, you can get a map. If you've got a map in the back of your Bible, you might want to turn to it, and I'll try to work your way through it. Uh, find a map that either says Paul's first and second journeys or Paul's third and fourth. It doesn't matter. It's the same territory. And if you look about in the middle of most maps, you'll find a city nestled up into the tip of the uh, Mediterranean. Where Philip? Can you find Philippi? Okay. And go way down and find the island of Crete, straight down from Philippi. Okay. If Paul is at Philippi, and uh, Titus is on that island of Crete, if you were to take a line and, and, and kind of have halfway territory going to the west, where Corinth is, a little bit up from Corinth on the border of the Adriatic Sea and the Mediterranean Sea is Nicopolis. And so they both would have to travel there and meet halfway. But it would be a great base of operations for an area just north of there called Dalmatia. Dalmatia is modern-day Yugoslavia and Albania, and Paul had a heart to preach the gospel there. In fact, after the winter that Paul speaks about, it is probable that Titus left and went to Dalmatia to do a new work. In fact, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just go back one book. You might just have to flip a page like I do in my Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 9, he writes to Timothy, and he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Now, 2 Timothy was written last of all. Titus was written before that. So no doubt Titus had left to go preach the gospel north in the area of Yugoslavia and Albania. So that's probably first and foremost. Secondly, 
Nicopolis would be a stepping stone for Paul the Apostle to go further west. He's sending other people north and everywhere else. Paul himself had a heart to take the gospel to the furthest ends of the earth, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We know he went to Rome. That's one uttermost part. But another uttermost part that he always wanted to go to was Spain. And he writes to the Romans at the end of the Roman epistle, and he says, I'm going to go see Rome, and I'm also going to go see Spain. Now, there's no record that he went to see Spain, but we have writings that would indicate he did. And I have a little clip tonight from the writings of Jerome, who writes about Paul's ministry. Jerome says, It ought to be said that at the first defense, the power of Nero not yet having been confirmed, nor his wickedness broken forth to such a degree as the histories relate concerning him, Paul was dismissed by Caesar Nero that the gospel might be preached also in the West. As he himself writes in the second epistle to Timothy, At the time when he was about to be put to death, dictating his epistle as he did while in chains, he said, At my first offense no one took my part, but all forsook me. May it not be laid to their account, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Clearly indicating Nero is a lion on account of his cruelty, He then, in the fourteenth year of Nero, on the same day with Peter, was beheaded at Rome for Christ's sake and was buried in the Ostian Way in the twenty-seventh year of our Lord's Passion. And Jerome goes on to indicate that the West meant Spain, as he indicated before. So it could be that after the two years' arrest, he went all the way to Spain, preached the gospel, and made all of these arrangements for the gospel being preached in Dalmatia and uh, so forth. So it was a natural stepping stone. You notice something about Paul's ministry, do you not, from the beginning to the end? He had a passion to preach the gospel, to widen the circle, to get as many people around him as he could who had the same passion. And he said, now there's some people who leave. They have forsaken me. They're not interested in the gospel. But there are some faithful people like Timothy, like Luke, like Titus. And I want to get them out and preach the gospel. It was always his passion to preach the gospel all through the world. One of the things that I love to see is new believers being added to the faith every single week here at Calvary. I get thrilled. I don't get tired of it. I get more elated. It's been said a church that does not evangelize will eventually fossilize. I believe that. I've seen too many dead, stifled churches who become ingrown and there's no outreach. There's no flow of new life. And Paul always wanted to see that. A third reason I think that he was sending Titus to Nicopolis, it might sound a little dumb, but it's a great winter resort. He spent two winters there. He spent all winter there, the first winter, and spent half the next winter there before he was finally arrested, taken to Rome where he was beheaded. Winters in those days were rough traveling. If you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 28, 27. When Paul was going through the Mediterranean Sea by ship, some of it was in winter, and that was the worst time to travel. And so usually people wouldn't travel in the winter. And Paul's, you know, we're going to take the winter off. Titus, I want you to come and hang out with me in Nicopolis. 
Now, you might ask this question as I did when I was reading this. If Paul placed Titus in Crete, as he said in chapter 1, verse 5, to set in order things that are lacking, and B, to ordain elders in every city, that's quite a job. Why would he then say, now leave, and I'm going to replace you with either Artemis or Tychicus? New job for you. Let these guys have it. You leave and spend the whole winter with me. Now, there's a few reasons that I think Paul did this. For number one, he wanted fellowship. Mutual fellowship, not just for himself, but especially for Titus. Paul's number was about up. In another year, he's going to be dead. Getting older, I'm sure he thought, I want to pass as much mentoring and life into other people that I can. Spend the winter with me, Titus. Uh, Go back to uh, 2 Timothy once again. Chapter 4. Look at verse 21. This is a year after he writes to Titus. Do your utmost to come before winter. So he's asking Timothy to come join him this time. Probably to continue the discipling process. There's a second reason, no doubt. Titus was to ordain elders, right, in every city in Crete. He had done that, no doubt. But you know, there is a time when the leader needs to leave and let those who have been ordained in leadership lead. Sometimes they're intimidated to lead when the kingpin is there. Titus was there getting things in order, but now pulling back, he's going to let those guys fulfill their ministry. And let God raise them up into new areas of ministry and responsibility. Now, he's not going to let go of the reins fully. He's not going to let the indigenous Cretans take over at first. He's going to be replaced by Artemis or Tychicus. One of those guys are going to come and be in charge. But eventually, that's the first step. Eventually, it's going to be taken over just by the natives, by the indigenous leadership. The third reason I think that he asked Titus to leave is simply to give him a break, to give him a winter off. Let him be disciple, but let him take a break, a hiatus, a sabbatical. Rest in the Lord. Jesus did this, didn't he, with his disciples? Mark chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. Titus was going to take a winter off, take a break, before he went to Dalmatia. Relax. You know what? It's okay to relax. You need to hear that, some of you. The Greeks had a saying, if you always keep the bow bent, eventually it will break. There's a lot of people that live with a bent bow. They're just always high stress, high impact. Cramming everything into their lives, never taking time to just cruise, relax. So he took the winter off. Some people think that fatigue is next to godliness. It is not. In fact, sometimes work can eclipse worship and be substituted for worship. Just ask the church of Ephesus. Jesus commended them for their labor, but he said, Ah, you have left your first love. Therefore, repent and return to your first love and do those first works over again. So it's possible to be very busy, but to neglect God and to neglect the worship of God 
And perhaps that's one of the practical reasons that he was sent. Next on the list is Artemis, also found in verse 12. We don't know much about him. His name appears here. He was a co-worker with Paul. His name means gift of Diana or Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. So it's a Greek pagan name. But he was saved and became a co-worker with Paul. Next is Tychicus. His name means fortune. It's an odd name. And if you're looking for a Bible name for your child, (laughs) skip it. Now notice he says, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus. These are two different people. He says, I don't know which I'm going to send, but I'm going to send one of them. Now which one did he send? We don't know exactly. I think that he sent Artemis instead of Tychicus. You say, well, why do you think that? Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So probably Artemis went over here to Crete. Tychicus is mentioned five times in the New Testament. And Paul talks about him as a fellow worker in the gospel. He says in Colossians, he is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. It was Tychicus who accompanied Paul from Greece through Macedonia and into Jerusalem before he was taken prisoner. It was Tychicus who accompanied him during his first imprisonment. It was Tychicus who brought the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians and delivered it to them. Paul's own writing, he was the errand boy who brought the epistle to those areas. So he was very important to Paul. And the fact that Paul would say he's a fellow worker, he's elevating Tychicus to his level. He's not saying, now I'm the great apostle Paul and these guys are my peons. He said they're fellow workers, which shows that Paul believed in the team concept of ministry. It was not a one-man show and Paul never thought it was. Next on the list is Zenos, or Zenos the lawyer. And the fact that uh, Paul would uh, endorse a lawyer shows his great heart of love and acceptance for anybody, right? (laughs) What kind of a lawyer he is, we don't exactly know. Was he a Jewish lawyer, like a scribe? Was he a Roman lawyer involved in Roman jurisprudence? And probably that's what he was, because he has a name that is really a pagan name. The Jewish person would never give uh, his child the name Gift of Zeus. That's what Zenos means. We don't know why uh, Paul was using his services, but uh, he became a co-worker with Paul the Apostle. Next is a familiar figure. If you've read Corinthians or Acts, you know about Apollos, right? He was the golden-tongued orator from Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was the great college town founded by Alexander the Great in 300 and some B.C. He was a man of tremendous oratory, tremendous knowledge. And when he came to Ephesus, he preached the gospel so clearly, except he wasn't quite right on some things. And Priscilla and Aquila, remember them, Acts chapter 18, had to teach him the way of the Lord more accurately. From there he goes to Achaia, preaches the gospel. He eventually ends up at Corinth. And he's a friend of Paul the Apostle, and Paul endorses him greatly, but he was such a powerful leader that the Corinthian church, after a while, forgot about Paul the Apostle as the starter of that church, and they divided over Paul and Apollos and Peter. There were turf wars. There were personality wars. Some said, I'm of Paul. 
Others said, I'm of Apollos. Some said, I'm of Cephas. Then there was the hyper-spiritual group who didn't want to associate with any church, any denomination. I'm just of Christ, they would say. And they were all divided. They were all carnal, Paul said. But nonetheless, it shows that Apollos became a very strong and important figure in the early church. Now, why are they mentioned here? It says, Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos, or send them on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. They're on a trip. What trip? Well, probably they are bringing this letter to Crete. And they're going to hand it to Titus. And then they're going to go on some journey we don't know exactly where. But wherever it is, he says, take care of them. Make sure that they have enough stuff. So that's a list of Paul's friends. Now let's look at verse 14 and look at the next section. And that is the main emphasis here. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So what he does, he lists his friends. He says, these guys are going on a journey. Take care of them. And by the way, then he uses the example of these two men to be taken care of as an example for all the church that our people, that is Christians in Crete, should learn to maintain good works. Now before we get into verse 14... There's a few lessons. I've given you a lot of history and a lot of names. There's some lessons, I think, in looking at Paul's faithful friends. And let's apply this to our lives. Number one, Paul was not the lone ranger. He didn't do things by himself. He always had a team of people. Some of us picture Paul the Apostle as sort of the crocodile dundee of apostles. Right? He's out on his own. He's the pioneer. He didn't need anybody else. It's just him and God. That was the furthest thing from the truth. He always had a team of people. Paul, Silas, uh, Timothy, Onesiphorus, uh, all these guys that we just mentioned, there were always people that surrounded him in a team. He never did things on his own. He believed in the body of Christ concept. And wherever Paul was, he had other people usually with him, except when he was in prison. Then he said, many people have departed from me. But nonetheless... He believed in the team concept. Jesus set up a pattern. He sent them out two by two. He sent them out two by two. And then he commissioned the disciples corporately when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But he sent them out as a team. And it seemed like throughout church history, they all went in groups. Jesus Christ himself though the Son of God, though He could be completely independent, chose to have disciples. They slowed Him down a bit, perhaps, but He was patient with them. There's an important point that anything you do in Christ or for the Lord, don't maintain the Lone Ranger concept. Nobody understands. Nobody's listening to God but me. I'm just going to go out and do it. There's a professor from Stanford University who said, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. It has been shown to be a central agent in the etiology of depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, rape, suicide, mass murder, and a wide variety of disease states. Anytime a Christian isolates himself from the crowd or a church isolates themselves from the rest, oh well, we do it our way and we won't cooperate with anybody else. 
spells danger. Second lesson about this list. Anonymous does not mean unnecessary. For some of you, this is the first time you've read names like Zenas, Tychicus, Artemis. Some of them we know a little bit about. Some of them we know nothing about. They are anonymous. But are they dispensable? Are they unnecessary? No. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, The body has many parts, not just one part. And some of the parts that seem the weakest and least important are really the most necessary. What if these guys decided, I don't want to carry any letter anywhere. I want to be an apostle. I want to go stand before kings in Caesarea. I want to lay hands on people and watch them walk again. I don't want to do something that nobody sees. What if Kimball would have never shared the gospel with Dwight L. Moody? What if Philip Melanchthon would have never taken young Martin Luther under his wing to teach him theology? Oh, I want to be famous like Luther. I don't want to be just his friend in the background. You haven't heard probably of Melanchthon as much as Luther or Kimball as much as Moody. They're anonymous, but they are very necessary. Point is, you fit in somewhere as a member of the body of Christ. Third lesson, little things we do for the Lord have a lasting impact. Little things we do have a lasting impact. Again, think of Zenos the lawyer, Apollos, Artemis, Tychicus, letter bearers. One takes Ephesians to Ephesus. One takes Colossians to Colossae. One takes a letter or two of them take this letter of Titus to Crete. It's not glamorous. But if you could sit these guys down and tell them, Your job is important, guys. And one day, people all over the world will have the letter that you bear bound in leather. And they'll be reading it. And your names will be in it. In fact, these letters outlasted the Roman Empire. These letters outlasted the reigns of any of the Caesars. Rome is gone, it's history. But these books remain. And their names are immortalized at the last of it. A little salt and a little light go a long way. Now, in verse 14, the final emphasis, and it's interesting that he kind of closes with this, isn't it? Let our people, that is our Christian people, also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Do you get the idea that Paul is singing the same old song over and over again? He mentions good works so often through this book, does he not? We've covered it on several occasions. It's one of his themes. He says, if you are an elder... You should be doing good. If you're an older woman, do good. If you're an older guy or a younger guy, do good works. If you're a Christian anywhere, do good works. And then he closes with that emphasis. One of his main themes, that our people would learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. The verb learn and the verb maintain are in the present tense. There's a present imperative, that's a command. And the idea is that we ought to be always learning to be always doing good things. He says, let me close with this emphasis, P.S. One of the messages I want you to get across to the Cretans is that Christians should be always thinking about always helping other people in terms of their needs. Now, he was speaking about 
Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos, they have an urgent need on their journey. Help them and tell our people to be always doing that. Great emphasis in the church. By the way, Paul the Apostle did this himself. He didn't just preach it to others. In Acts chapter 20, he writes, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my own necessities and for those who were with me. Same idea. In Malta, when Paul was on a shipwreck, some of the Christians on that island did the same thing. Acts 28. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. And then Paul commended the Philippians for doing this. He said in Philippians 4, For even in Thessalonica you did send aid once and again for my necessities. In other words, you were always flexible to give financially when I had an urgent need to preach the gospel on a missionary journey. And Zenos and Apollos are doing the same thing. Take care of them. Make sure you take care of them. And then tell the Christians that they ought to always be in the habit of doing that. They ought to have enough flexibility with the resources God has given them that they should give to the Lord's work. And he says, if they're not doing that, they're unfruitful. That's the idea when he says that they may not be unfruitful. The idea, of course, is in the monetary sense, bearing fruit in a monetary way. Do you ever see your money as fruit? Fruit that would abound to your account as you invested in the work of the kingdom? Dwight L. Moody used to talk about conversion, and he said, usually the hardest thing to convert in a man is his pocketbook. But it's always the indication that he has been converted when God converts his pocketbook. I read an article this week that said if every Christian in the United States lost his job or her job, went on welfare, but decided to tithe 10%, of what he was getting from government aid, that the church giving in the United States would immediately increase 30%. Isn't that interesting? Everybody gets broke, everybody goes on welfare, but everybody decides, I'll give a portion of it to the Lord's work. The church giving would go up, not down. So you tell the people at Crete, our people, they ought to do good works. And one of the works they ought to do is be very open and flexible with the financial resources God has given them for the missionaries that come and the urgent needs that come their way. And then his farewell remarks in verse 15, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And he ends where he begins with grace. Grace be with you all. Amen. Grace was a common greeting A common salutation. Of course, Paul means it a lot more than just adios. He means Christian grace. Unmerited favor. May you experience God's goodness and unmerited favor to all of you. Amen. That's Paul's epistle to Titus at Crete. One of the reasons we have the school of ministry is because I want lots of helpers be honest with you. I love watching God give people vision and direction and have them say, I want to go be a missionary. I want to go start a church. I want to work on a staff somewhere or this staff. And we've had many people from the schools of ministry on our staff. If the truth be known, why do you have a school of ministry? I want a lot of helpers to spread the grace of God and the gospel of God around the world. 
If you ever leave this church on a Sunday morning or even at night because there's lights on it, if you go outside into the courtyard, you'll notice an inscription that we have put up on the limestone wall. It says, go into all the world, dot, dot, dot. You know the rest of it, and preach the gospel to every living creature. And then the one who gave that commission is engraved in stone, Jesus Christ. And I said when we were putting it up, that's the only name I want on this building engraved in permanence is Jesus' name. I don't want my name engraved in stone. Put his name up there. And what a thing to notice as you leave. Go into all the world. And if you think of the church as a salt shaker, we all get all spiced up when we come and we learn, but salt doesn't do a whole lot of good in the salt shaker. It's when it goes out and spreads throughout the city and the nation and the world that it has great impact. So may God send you out and commission you into all the world to preach the gospel to every living creature. Let's pray. Father, we think of the heart of this great apostle whose heart was beating with your message and your methods. And he was looking for your men and your women who had the same vision. Some came alongside and they departed. Having loved this present world, others came and they stuck And they took the vision elsewhere, and they took the message elsewhere. We see that Paul the Apostle had lots of helpers, lots of people who had the same drive that he had to get the gospel out everywhere, people who would be willing to die if need be for that. Father, we think of ourselves almost 2,000 years later, and we are so thankful for those people who from generation to generation have been faithful to bring the gospel to different countries, including the United States of America, which from the biblical perspective is about as uttermost as you can get. And yet here we are tonight, recipients of the gospel. We're thankful, Lord, for their testimony. Though we don't know all the people who are involved, they are anonymous to many of us, but they are very, very essential. I pray, Lord, that you would show us that the little things that we do go a long way. And though we may be anonymous, we are very important. Just as Kimball was important to Moody, Melanchthon was important to Luther, Silas, Zenos, Timothy, Titus, and the rest were so important to Paul. Lord, I pray now that we would live out these principles Because now, having heard them, we are responsible for them. For you said, to whom much is given, much shall be required. So now, Lord, we take the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.